Well, good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. Do you have a Bible this evening? We're going to the book of Luke, 7th Division of Luke's Great Gospel is where we're going to spend all of our time tonight, Luke chapter 7. And while you're opening your Bible and getting settled, it's uh, my privilege to welcome all of you this evening. If you are visiting with this church family as I am this week, we are especially happy that you have come our way. We hope you'll have occasion to come and be with this good church again on a on an occasion like this or on a Lord's Day. We hope you can do that <clears throat> very soon and do that do that often. Glad that we can be together tonight. I am always aware during the course of a gospel meeting that there are a lot of things that vie for your time and your attention through the course of a week. I know there are a lot of places you could be tonight activities in which you could be engaged, we are grateful that you've carved out this niche of time to be with us. You encourage us in that, and for that, we are very, very grateful. I am enjoying, as always, being with this church family. This group is always so hospitable and so gracious. You make me feel very welcome among you, and for that, for that, I am very, very grateful. I will tell you that I was thinking at dinner tonight that in the last three days, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, I have eaten more food than I would typically eat in a month. And so <clears throat> I, uh, if anybody has any extra oxygen tonight, that would be a, that'd be a helpful thing to me for just a, a little while. But I've enjoyed being with you very much and appreciate the fine way you listen. I want to encourage you, if you can, tomorrow morning, we're going to conclude the little series we've been doing on profiles and good works. You know, we talked yesterday about James, the brother of Jesus, and this morning about the book of Philemon and Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. And tomorrow we're going to look at the most familiar of the lessons, and that will be about, about Barnabas. We're going to try to look at Barnabas through fresh eyes, some of the ways that he pops up in Scripture, and in particular what he was doing on those occasions that made him, in fact, a son of encouragement. And so we hope you can be with us tomorrow morning at 10. I'm glad we can be together for a few minutes tonight to talk, as you can see on the screen, about heaven's help in human form. Just before, just before things shut down with COVID, I was flying from Tampa, Florida to Boise, Idaho for a gospel meeting, and I was on Delta, which meant that I had to go through Atlanta, and so in Atlanta, I changed planes, and when I get on the plane in Atlanta, as often happens with Delta, because I fly them an awful lot, I got bumped up to first class, which I always enjoy, and so I'm putting my things away, and I look back, and two rows behind me, there is Jeff Foxworthy. You know who Jeff Foxworthy is? And so... uh, that was very interesting, and people were speaking to him, and he was very kind and gracious to everybody. And I got to thinking about him. You know, he made a he he became famous with all that business of you might be a redneck if, and he had a thousand of those. And he would say things like this. He would say things like, "Look, if your dad walks you to school every day because you're in the same grade, you might be a redneck." And he said, "If your wife has ever said to you, hey," Come move this transmission out of the bathtub so I can take a bath. You might, you might be a redneck. And I got to thinking about that a little bit. How would we say that about members of the Church of Christ? You might be a member of the Church of Christ. What kind of things might we say about that? Well, I got to thinking about that. You know, if, if you have sung joy to the world a thousand times in July and not once in December, you might be a member of the Church of Christ. Or if you know, actually know, what a ready recollection is, you might be a member of the Church of Christ. And if you don't see any humor in any of that, you're probably a member of the Church of Christ. <laughs> it's interesting, I think, for us to contemplate on occasion how we see ourselves 
and how others see us. But of course, what really matters is, how does God see us? What is God's perspective of us? How does the Lord see you and how does the Lord see me? And the fact of the matter is that He does see us. The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping eye on both the evil and the good. One of the most familiar statements out of the Psalms is that God saw our unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before even one of them came to be. Fact is that God didn't need an ultrasound to see and know us. There is nothing that you are going through in 2022 of which our God is not aware He sees the hardships you face. He knows the sacrifices you make. He knows every burden that you bear because God sees you. Even when we think God does not, He does. And so in the Old Testament, Hagar finds herself alone in the desert, believes that she is completely abandoned by all, and yet God is there. And to the point that she eventually will name the place after God, and she gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God. You are the God who sees me. And so again, when we think God doesn't see us, He does. And when we don't see Him, He sees us. Why? Because that's what a father does. I was thinking about that when I was preparing these remarks. And I I remembered when my daughter graduated from college, I was sitting up in the bleachers and I was looking down and all it was was a sea of black gowns and caps. And yet, I had no difficulty identifying my daughter at all finding her in that sea of humanity that looks so similar. Well, why? Well, because that's my girl. And because that's what a father does when he loves his kids, he sees them. And so if you want to know how God sees you, how God looks at you, the New Testament would say that you've got to get to know a little bit about Jesus Christ. And what we learn about Jesus is that He doesn't just see crowds of people. He sees people in crowds. And so He sees you. He knows you. The book of Luke, particularly chapter 7, I think is a wonderful example of that simple truth. Luke chapter 7, in many ways, is like a prism that you look through, and it shows you the various ways that the Lord Jesus sees individuals, how He sees you, and how He sees me. And so what I'd like to do tonight is just take a, a few minutes, and let's look at these little vignettes in the life of Jesus in this one simple chapter. And how he interacts with individuals and sees individuals in their various circumstances. And how he interacts with them. And we learn then how he interacts and deals with us so many years later, yet today. Luke 7. Do you have your Bible? Let's begin reading tonight and set the scene a little bit, beginning in verse number 1. Here's the narrative that is written by Luke. Now, verse 1. Now, when he concluded all these sayings, that these sayings, by the way, would have been Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And so when he had concluded the mountain message and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and was ready to die. Let's stop there for just a second. There is a background here. I want to go ahead and put on the screen this. That first encounter has to do with the Roman centurion, where Jesus sees individuals when they are desperate. A Roman centurion would have been, of course, an impressive man, a powerful man, an influential man. But what we learn in him is that even when you're extremely strong, you can have a point of weakness, particularly if that point of weakness involves somebody that you love and you feel as though you are helpless to do anything to make a difference in their life. And so this centurion has a servant that he cares about, that he loves a great deal, and he's extremely ill, he is about to die. Now the narrative would pick up in verse 3, and 
and say this, that when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to Jesus, pleading with him to come and to heal his servant. And when those elders of the Jews came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one to, <clears throat> for whom he should do this was deserving. Well, it's an interesting narrative that takes place right there. And so Jesus, you know, when they, when he, when they talk to him, they say, look, this is a good man, he's a devout man. He would not have been a proselyte. He would have been what the Jews would have called a God-fearer. And they say, he has built us a synagogue. And so, this is a good man. Would you do this for this man? And Jesus says, yes, I'll do that. Let's go. Let's go to his house. But you know the story because you're good Bible students. That before he can get there, the centurion sends another ambassador to him. And he says, look, I understand authority. And you understand authority. And he says, I tell servants come to me, and they come, and I tell them to go do something, and they do it. And so I know that you are a man of authority as well. And I know that you can just speak the word, and my servant will be healed. I'm not worthy that you should come to my house. I think probably what the man was doing was really saying, look, if you come to my house, I know you're going to be unclean. And so I don't want that to have to happen to you. So just speak the word, and my servant my servant will be healed. And that was what motivated Jesus to make that rather famous statement when he says, I have not found so great faith. No, not even in Israel. And you know the rest of the story, don't you, in verse number 10, that those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. And I just want to make the quick observation here, if I may, that the Lord sees you when you're desperate. And again, this is an influential and powerful man. This is a man who does have authority, and yet he feels helpless in regard to this individual that he loves. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you have felt helpless to intervene and help somebody who is sick that you love desperately as well. Ladies and gentlemen, in 2022, when, we have, when mental stress is so great, when so many are struggling with so much as we've navigated our way out of so much in the last couple of years, please would you understand tonight that God sees you when you are desperate. God sees the wife who has just learned that her husband has been having the affair. He sees the parent who, whose daughter is addicted to drugs. He sees the, the middle-aged man who has just lost his job. He sees the, the, the children having to make a decision about assisted living or nursing home care for a, for a parent that they love so much. He sees the man who goes to his doctor and he's only expecting to leave with some antibiotics, but in reality, he leaves and he's scheduled for chemotherapy. He sees the Christian who is part of a church that is, that is dark and discouraging and that Christian who believes that there is no prospect for improvement on the horizon. He sees us. Whatever the circumstance is, he sees us when we're desperate. Please understand that our hope for tomorrow is based on God's compassion for today. We'll come back to the word compassion in just a second. This story where Jesus heals the centurion's son segues away from that into a, an amazing story about a heartbroken mother. And it teaches us that Jesus sees us when we are grieving. Do you have your Bible? Let's read a little bit. In Luke 7, let's pick up the narrative in verse number 11. Now it happened the day after that Jesus went to a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him, along with a large crowd. Could I get you just to underscore in your mind the two-word phrase, there was a large crowd. There was a large crowd traveling with Jesus. Verse 12, 
When he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd, would you underscore that in your mind, please? That there was a large crowd traveling with this mother, this funeral procession as well. And so a large crowd from the city was with her. Let's stop there for just a minute. In the narrative, Luke is clear that Jesus is going to a little hamlet, a little village called Nain. Nain is an interesting word. He just means pleasant. But Nain was not a pleasant environment this day. Because this day in Nain, death had come. Now sometimes death can be a blessing. We all have seen those circumstances where we would say that, where Solomon was right in the Ecclesiastes 3, that, that it's just there is a time. There is a time to die, and we've all seen that. But on this occasion, it is a young person who has died. And that is always sad, and that is always tragic. And so Nain was not a pleasant place on this particular day. And it's interesting that there are two radically different groups who are about to intersect with each other. The text says that there is a large group traveling with Jesus. And they would have been excited. They would have been happy based on what he had done the day before. And no doubt, they were full of anticipation. What's he going to do today? If he did this great miracle yesterday, what's he going to do today? But the large group coming out of the city, this funeral possession, they are grieving. They are grieving because not only is it a young man who has died, but this is the only son of his mother. And already she is a widow, her husband has died. And so now she is without husband and without son in a man's world. She is a woman alone in a man's world. And so the grief for this woman must have been absolutely consuming and overwhelming. And now, now these two groups are going to intersect. What would happen when they met? The narrative says in verse 13 that when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Compassion is an interesting word, by the way. It means to suffer with. It's with suffering. Passion has to do with suffering. You know, in the spring every year, during the Easter season, you will see performances that talk about the passion of the Christ or the suffering of the Christ. And so when it says that Jesus felt compassion, it's saying not just did he see her and think about her, and not did he, he didn't just feel sorry for her, but he suffered with her. His heart broke for her. He suffered with her. And I want you to notice the narrative that it says the Lord saw her. Don't miss that, ladies and gentlemen. The Lord saw her. And what I think when I think about that is is this, that the world is concerned about the crowd, but Jesus is concerned about you. The world's always concerned about crowds. The world loves crowds. We try to get crowds together, and yet the Lord, Jesus, is concerned about you. Don't miss that. Don't miss how important that is, ladies and gentlemen, that the world is concerned about crowds, and the Lord is concerned tonight about You, think about it maybe this way. When you pray, when you pray tonight, when you pray this week, do you understand that you are praying to the God of whom it was said that God so loved the world, that is, God loved all of His his, uh, animate creation, all His human creation. And you pray, you pray to to the Lord, the Lord Jesus, who gave His life 
for the world. And I believe that God and Jesus are ministering to this world in millions of ways that, that we cannot even begin to comprehend. And yet, when you pray, ladies and gentlemen, He cares about you. Personally and individually, you. He is meeting with you. He stops for you. He loves you. He ministers to you. Your need may not be as great, may not be as life-threatening as somebody else, and yet He listens to you. No wonder Peter would say, cast all of your cares upon Him, because He cares about you. The world is concerned about the crowds, and the Lord is concerned about you. And so please understand tonight, that whatever it is with which you are struggling, whatever it is that drags you down, whatever it is that robs your peace and destroys your sleep, please understand that you tonight have Jesus' attention. He cares about you. The Hebrew writer said, Hebrews 13 and 5, God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He cares about the no doubt. But He also cares about the outcast. He cares about the rich, but He cares about the poor. He cares about the respected, but also the rejected. And the point of it is that the love of Jesus Christ is absolutely indiscriminate. And ours, ours must be as well. He sees you when you are grieving. It is from those two stories that in so many ways have so many similarities that the narrative shifts dramatically. And the third story has to do with John the baptizer. And it teaches us that Jesus sees us when we doubt. It's hard to put the word doubt and John the baptizer together, but they are together in Luke chapter 7. Here's the narrative. The first couple of verses let me put on the screen if I may. Look at what it says. The disciples of John the baptizer <clears throat> told John about everything that Jesus was doing. Now that's an important statement because they tell him about everything that Jesus had been doing, which would include the two narratives of which we just spoke. And when John hears that, he calls two of his disciples and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we have been expecting? Or should we keep on looking or someone else. I would imagine that you've said in Bible classes or sermons and you've heard this, this narrative discussed. And it is an amazing question. It just doesn't seem right. How in the world could John the baptizer ask this question of Jesus? Because after all, he was the very first. He was the first one, John 1 and beginning in verse 29, to say, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He had baptized Jesus, he heard the voice of God validate Jesus. He saw the Holy Spirit of God descend upon Jesus. And so how in the world could John possibly ask this question? How could he doubt? Well, I think maybe for a couple of reasons. One, of course, would be that his circumstances were difficult. And you know what they were. You're very good Bible students, and so you know. You know that Herod had, <clears throat> had stolen his brother's wife and he was living in a terrible adulterous situation and John the baptizer had the had the audacity to point that out to him and talk to him about the sinful nature of that and his thanks for that was that he was arrested and he's rotting in jail and so difficult circumstances can create doubt they still do today you think about things like disease or disaster or death 
That unholy triumvirate, ladies and gentlemen, has been more than enough to cause multiple individuals to question their faith and question their God. Where is God when I hurt? And so his circumstances were difficult. But I think maybe even more so is that Jesus' methods were inexplicable. Jesus' methods were inexplicable. You know, John, John the baptizer had said, look, after me there is one coming, and he is more powerful than I am. And here's what he will do. He will gather the wheat into the barn, but he will take the chaff, and he will burn it with unquenchable fire. But Jesus was not raining down fire on sinners. Jesus was having dinner with sinners. And two, remember what we saw just a moment ago. His disciples came to him and they told him everything that Jesus had been doing. And that no doubt included, John, you can't believe this. He healed a centurion, a Gentile centurion's servant. And then he healed a woman he had never seen or met before. He brought her son back to life. And you can imagine that John is thinking, wait a minute. He helped a Gentile, a Gentile centurion's servant. And he helped a woman he didn't know with a son. But he hasn't done anything for me. I mean, I I stood up for what was right. I talked about what was right. I stood up to a man who could take my life. And he's not here rescuing me. Where is he in all of this? It's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, that in this narrative, in verse number 21, do you have your Bible? Look, Look at what it says. So they they come to Jesus and they they ask his cousin's question. And look at verse 21. At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities and afflictions and the evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Have you ever thought about that verse? John's disciples come and say, look, John wants to know, are you the Messiah or are are we looking for someone else? And immediately, I want you to notice that there was a flurry of miracles. That that very hour, Jesus, there's just kind of a, an outpouring here of, of miracles, just a, a baptism of miracles, if it were, one after another, after another, after another. And then Jesus says this. Jesus said, look, here's what I want you to do. Go tell John the things that you have just seen. Well, what would that be? It'd be all those miracles. So go tell John all the things you have seen and heard. You go tell him that you just saw The blind see and the lame walk and lepers cleansed and deaf hear and the dead raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What's he doing in that? Well, what Jesus is doing in that is giving John evidence to believe. He doesn't just say, look, go tell my cousin, how dare you question me? You know who I am. Instead, he does all those miracles and then says, look, go tell him what you saw and heard. Because John's going to immediately recognize this. Because all of these things, the blind see, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of those are things that the prophet said Messiah would do as signs of being Messiah. I wonder if when John heard all that, I wonder when John heard all of that, if he said, like the father of the demon-possessed boy, who said, your, your disciples couldn't do anything, and then he said, if you can do anything, and Jesus interrupted him and said, if, if I can do anything, 
And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I wonder if that's where John was. But I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that's where I've been. I've been there many times. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I want to say before we leave this point that the Lord does help our unbelief. Always remember, ladies, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the difficulty, always remember the prophecies He fulfilled and the miracles that He performed and the positive changes He brought to society. And remember His resurrection from the dead. And remember, as the Hebrew writer said, He ever lives to make intercession for us. Christian faith is not believing in the absence of evidence. We talked about that Sunday. Christian faith is believing because we we stand on mounds of inscrutable evidence. He sees you when you doubt. Now, before we go to the next little vignette in the story, there's an interlude here. And the interlude begins when Jesus, when Jesus, after uh, verse 22, or verse 23, the, the messengers of John departed. Jesus began to speak to the multitude concerning John. And he says, listen, what, when you went to the desert to see John the baptizer, what did you think you were going to see? And he talks to them about that a little bit. And here's the conclusion that he comes to about John in verse 28. He said, I want you to know that among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the baptizer. Now he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater. But he makes it clear, I want you to know that there is none greater among prophets than John the baptizer. And as a result of that, in verse number 29, when the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But in the next verse, the Pharisees and the scribes, they rejected the counsel of God against themselves, not being baptized with the baptism of John. That's important for us to understand what's going to follow. And so multitudes, it seems, are are being baptized with John's baptism. But there are two groups, the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribes, the experts in the law. And they'll have none of that. They are not about to do that. And it is from that basis that the next vignette comes into play. And so he deals with the Pharisees a little bit. And the point of it is that that he sees us when we play games with God. I want you to look at the screen for just a minute. I want to read to you from a translation that I typically do not use, but it makes what we're talking about very clear. Jesus said, To what can I compare the people of this generation, Jesus asked. How can I describe them? They are like children playing a game in the public square. They complain to their friends and they say, We we played wedding songs. You didn't dance. And so we played funeral songs. But you did not weep. Now, I want to tell you, if you've ever read Luke chapter 7, you've probably got to this point. We all have and have thought, what on earth does this have to do with anything? I mean, I understand the, the, the three things that we talked about before this, but what does this have to do with anything? Why would Jesus use those two illustrations? Jesus says, you're like kids playing games. You're, you're like children playing games in the public square. And you're saying things like this. We, we played wedding songs, but you wouldn't dance. And we played funeral songs, and you wouldn't weep. Why those two illustrations? Well, because those were the two great social events of their day, and that's what children would play. They would play wedding and funeral. Just like our kids today, when they're little, what do they do? Well, they play church. 
But in that day, they would play wedding and they would play funeral. Those were the social events of their time. And I think what Jesus is doing is talking about how the religious leaders of his days would play games. And they tried to play games with Jesus, but the problem is he wouldn't play. And so Jesus says, look, you say, we, we played wedding songs and you, you did not dance. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to dance to your tune. I mean, you can, you can try to flatter me. You've tried to do that. You've tried to gain my favor that way. I'm, I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to dance to your tune. I'm not going to do what you want. And so when you went to the other extreme and you became foreboding and you threatened me and you put a price on my head and said that if I don't line up and do what you want, you will kill me, I want you to know I'm not afraid of you. I'm not going to weep. I'm not going to mourn. I'm not going to run. And so Jesus says, you're playing games. And he said, I'm not going to play. The Pharisees, by the way, played games with a lot of things in religion. They, they played games certainly with Scripture. Uh, the Pharisees knew Scripture. They, they could quote Scripture in, inside and out. They knew the hard questions to ask other people, but they wouldn't ask them of themselves. They knew how to put Jesus on the spot, or at least they thought they did. But they would never, never take an honest look at themselves. And so they, they were playing games with matters of eternal life and eternal death. And Jesus says, I'm not going to play I'm not going to play your game. Now, we're going to come back to that thought in just a minute. We need to segue out of that to the last story in Luke 7. And this is a story that takes place in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And the point of it is that Jesus sees when we are broken, but it is not Simon that is broken. It's another character in the story in Luke 7 who is, who is broken. So let me give you a little bit of the background here in so we can get to the character that we really want to talk about. The narrative then segues into this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went. Jesus went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. Jesus had an interesting relationship with the Pharisee. He was very hard on the Pharisees. He was honest with the Pharisees. But I I will tell you, he loved the Pharisees. There's no doubt about that. There were some Pharisees who plotted to kill him. And Simon may have been that, of that ilk. We, just, we don't know. Simon may have been invited Jesus so that he could try to manipulate the conversation, maybe entrap him so that he could turn him over to the authorities. I don't know. But there were other Pharisees, like Nicodemus, who seemingly wanted to be with Jesus and learn from Jesus. And maybe Simon was of that ilk. I hope and pray that he was. I, I hope he was a man that with good intent and good motive wanted, wanted to simply be with Jesus and, and learn from him. I I hope he was genuine. I hope he was open-minded. I hope he was willing to learn and not just playing games with with God. So now we're back to that business of playing games again. I wonder if Simon was playing games. When Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to have dinner, I wonder if he was trying to play games. I don't know. But I want to ask you tonight. Have you ever played games with God? Have you ever played games with God? Have you ever, for example, gone to church just enough to keep your mom and dad off your back or maybe keep the elders off your front porch? Or have you ever learned just enough Bible maybe to be dangerous? Have you ever dealt with portions of the Scripture as though they are the inconvenient parts of Scripture as though they are written in invisible ink that they really don't count, they really don't matter, and you play games about that? You know, maybe that whole narrative where, where Jesus said, look, I'm going to dance your tune. I'm not going to weep. I'm not going to play games with you. Maybe, maybe that's there to say to all of us, look, 
The Lord knows us, and so we, it, it's time to be, to be the adult, to be the mom, the dad, the grandparent, the worker, whatever, to be the teenager, to be the person that you really ought to be and not play games with God. But in this last story, the main character is not Simon the Pharisee, although he'll come into play again in just a second. But the main character is an uninvited guest who shows up to the dinner party. And this is not a game to her. This is deadly serious to her. Here's the narrative. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life, when she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. And she kissed them and poured perfume on them. There's much that we don't know about this woman. What we do know is that the narrative says that she had lived a sinful life. And I would tell you that before we look down our collective noses at her, we just ought to all realize that we've all lived a sinful life, haven't we? We we have all done that. We've all lived that way. I've said many times at Temple Terrace that that if, if church, if our worship services... If our worship services were like a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have to begin every single sermon by saying, Hello, my name is Don. I am a sinner. Because that's what I am. And when we're talking about what the Lord sees, you know, we we talk about how the Lord sees us when we are grieving and when we are broken and when we are desperate and when we are hurting. But He does see us at other times too. The Lord knew she was a sinful woman. He knows when we are sinful. If you go to work tomorrow and you, you do a deal that is shady or underhanded in some way, the, the, the Lord sees that. If you go to school tomorrow and you, uh, you steal the intellectual property of somebody else, that is you cheat by looking at somebody else's work, He sees that. If you go home tonight and turn on your computer and you click on a porn site, the Lord sees that. If you... Speak about somebody in a denigrating kind of way behind their back, or you gossip about them. The Lord sees that. He sees everything. I mean, think about it, ladies and gentlemen. Adam and Eve tried to hide, and Jonah tried to run, but it is really hard to play hide and seek with omniscience. And so she had lived a sinful life. And I tell you, she knew that. And the Lord knew that. He sees us when we are broken. And the narrative says simply that she was weeping. Weeping. Please understand that that indicates that she was not, <clears throat> she was not just moved emotionally where she had, she had just some tears running down her cheek or she was just kind of sniffing a little bit because she was touched by what he was saying. She I think the word is is describing a situation where she really is inconsolable. And I've wondered, what what on earth was it that Jesus was saying? What was he teaching? What was he he emphasizing that, that touched this woman so deeply? I don't know. I mean, maybe... Maybe he was telling the story again about a, about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them strays away and he's willing to leave the ninety and nine to go and find the one and she understood that she is the one about whom he is speaking. Maybe it was that. Or maybe he was telling the story again of the prodigal son only this time 
It was a prodigal daughter, and she knew, she knew that Jesus was talking about her. Maybe that was it. I don't know. But I will tell you that whatever she heard that time, it moved her deeply. And I will tell you the voice of Jesus ought to move us as well. As a side point, very quickly here, we are, if we're honest about this circumstance, this had to be getting extremely awkward for everybody. This had to be one of the most awkward situations you can imagine. Because, first of all, she's uninvited and she is unwelcome. But they know how Jesus deals with people like her. And so they can't say anything because they know that is not going to go well with the Lord. But as she is weeping there, as she is weeping there, and the tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet, and she is embarrassed by that. And what do I do about that? And so she, you know, Jesus is, what did the text say? She, he's reclining, he's reclining, and so he's reclining on the ground. And so now she has to get down there, and she does what no self-respecting Jewish woman would ever do. She uncovers her hair in public, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair, and it probably is at this point that Simon has just had all of this that he can take. He is absolutely, totally, completely disgusted by all of that. And Simon, when he turned to her, if I may go back, let me go back from that. Simon, Simon says, look, if he knew what kind of woman this is who is touching him, he would not allow this. And the fact of the matter is that Jesus didn't know what kind of woman she was. But Simon did not know what kind of a Savior Jesus was. And so, Jesus says, Simon, I have something I'd like to say to you. And I'd like to know how Simon said that back to him. I imagine it's something like, fine, say it. And he says, okay. There was a man who had two debtors. One of them owed the man a year and a half of wages, and the other owed him a month and a half of wages. Neither one of them could pay. He forgave both of them. Which one's going to love him more? And Simon the Pharisee said, Well, I reckon the one whom he forgave the most. And Jesus said, That is exactly right. And Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Ladies and gentlemen, don't miss that. That Jesus' question to Simon is, do you see her? And I can imagine that Simon was thinking, of course I see her. She's made a spectacle of everything. She's not welcome here, and here she is in the middle of everybody. Yes, we all see her, Lord. She's, yeah, we all see her. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Do you see her? The problem was that Simon did not see her. Uh, He was aware that somebody was there, but he didn't see her. He did not see her. And I want to ask you tonight, ladies and gentlemen, could it be, could there ever be a little Simon the Pharisee in us? Could there be a little Simon the Pharisee in any of us? Have Have you ever judged somebody by the color of their skin? Have you ever judged somebody by the nation of their birth? Have you ever judged somebody by the clothes they wear, the car they drive, or the region of the United States from which they are, they hail? Or have you ever judged somebody by their political party? Have you ever judged somebody by any of those superficialities? 
I will tell you that Simon may have seen her with their eyes, but he did not see her the way that Jesus saw her. Because Simon saw a problem, and Jesus saw a person. A person who was made in the image of God. A person with a soul that needed to be redeemed. Simon saw a nuisance, and Jesus saw a need. She needed a Savior. She had lived a sinful life. She knew it. Everybody knew it. She had a need. And Simon saw a situation to avoid. Jesus saw an opportunity to help. Because Simon did not want to dirty his hands with somebody like her. As long as he would keep in her place, away from the nice people, that was fine. Jesus saw an opportunity to help. And Simon saw her weakness. And Jesus saw her faith. Just like with the centurion, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I will guarantee you, I will guarantee you that in this room tonight, there are people who are desperate like the centurion or grieving like the widow or doubting like John the baptizer or playing games with God like the Pharisees or broken like this woman. Because the human condition, ladies and gentlemen, has not changed. I want you to track with me tonight, if you will, for just one more minute. Before you put everything away, just listen, please, for one more minute. I want to end with this tonight. <clears throat> when I read Luke 7, what I come away with is this simple thought. That for every hurt, Jesus is our hope. For every hurt, Jesus is our hope. And you know what? I know that when I say that, I know there's always going to be a segment of the audience that's going to say, you know what, Don? That's the problem with religion. In religion, you just believe that, that with everything, no matter how deep the problem, no matter how great the hurt, you just need to pray a little more, read the Bible a little more, go to church a little more, sing a little more, just, you know, just, just have a little bit more faith. That's the problem, Don. It's just ridiculously simplistic approach to life. But let me tell you why I would say that. For every hurt, Jesus is our hope. I believe that, ladies and gentlemen, because of six words. In Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and things in earth, visible, invisible. He is before all things. And look at this. In Him, all things hold together. If you believe that, ladies and gentlemen, it changes your perspective about the world. If you believe that in Jesus, all things hold together. When I read that, what I deduce is that our hope, our hope is not in the governor of our state or the president of our nation. Our hope is in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I hear Paul say in Philippians 3 and 20 that our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Fascinating thought about Philippians 3 and 20. We eagerly wait for the Savior. It just dawned on me not long ago that Paul very rarely refers to Jesus as Savior. I don't know why that is. But rarely in his writing does he call Jesus Savior. Use that as the name of Jesus. But when he does do that, he is almost always making a point that Jesus is Savior and no one else is. In the first century world in which the Apostle Paul lived, everybody believed that Caesar was Savior. And so in this verse, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And there is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, everybody believed that Caesar was Savior. And Paul's trying to make it very clear that Jesus is Savior. As if he is saying, look, emperors come and emperors go. And, and he says, you know, I'm not really concerned about that very much. Just like today, presidents come and presidents go. I care about that, but I, tell you, I don't worry too much about that. Because the one constant is that Jesus is Lord. And he doesn't have to be nominated. He doesn't have to be voted into office. He doesn't have to be reelected. He doesn't have to be appointed. He doesn't need to hold fundraisers or hold rallies. His followers hold rallies every Sunday. We call it church. Because Jesus has a card to play that no emperor, prime minister, or president can ever play. And that is the empty tomb. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we, we've come to believe in 21st century America that the next law, the next reform, the next amendment, the next invention, the next president, the next whatever is going to be sufficient to bring order out of the chaos. And the New Testament says that if you want to bring order to your life or to your country or to your world, you've got to acknowledge the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because Jesus didn't come into this world to take sides. He came into this world to take over. And he is still on his throne. And his kingdom, ladies and gentlemen, is not in trouble. It is that understanding. Maybe that's why that the, maybe that's why the Beatitudes begin with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are willing to come before God and say, I am spiritually bankrupt. Turn, as it were, their spiritual pockets inside out and say, I have nothing with which to save myself. I am going to be wholly dependent upon you. And so if you are desperate, or broken, or grieving, and hopefully not playing games with God, the hope of the world, the lie to the world, is willing to say, if you'll have that mindset, if you'll just come to me broken, if you just come to me in broken obedience, I can give you life. Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're in this building. You realize that this relationship that you need to have with the one in whom all things hold together, that you just don't have that right now. You can tonight. Before we leave this building, you can be baptized into Christ. You can rise to walk in newness of life. If you're his child and, you, and, you, and you've walked away from that, why would you want to stay in that circumstance? The fact of the matter is that you can come home to him tonight and have all the things that we've been talking about this week, they can be yours spiritually. And so if there's a response to God you need to make tonight in a public way, and we can help you. We hope you'll let us. Let's stand and let's sing.